Hey, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. Great to see you here today. I'm really glad you made it for week three of our Christmas sermon series called Joy to the World. I don't know if you're feeling especially joyful today. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But either way, we wanted to do something fun to, to share some joy this morning. Uh, last week, Jared said we were going to have a surprise today, and the time has come for that surprise. Several people in this room are about to get an early Christmas present. We're going to give away some really nice Christmas cookies and some other treats. And just so you know, these are not sad little store-bought cookies. Uh, these are homemade, hand-frosted. They're the real deal. So how do you know if you're a winner? Well, I'll tell you. Throughout this room, we've hidden some Christmas tree air fresheners. They're sealed in a plastic bag to hold in that fake pine scent. And if you find one of these nearby, you can just take it to the information center after service, show them your tree, and they'll give you the basket of cookies and treats. So... Here we go. Need everybody to stand up and then look under your seat. They should be taped under the seat. And if you don't find one and you have some seats next to you that are empty, you can look around, see if you can find an air freshener. Hold it up if you got one. Anybody, anybody find one? Oh, yeah. See several of them here. And if, if you're walking around looking, that's fine. No judgment, no problem. And uh, whenever you're good, you can go ahead and have a seat. If you did not find one, just a, a strategy for you, you can come back second service, look around before the service starts, <laughs> give you a, an advantage. So... Merry Christmas to you guys. I've, I've been looking forward to our big cookie giveaway, but I've also really been looking forward to digging into God's Word today. Uh, for the past couple weeks, we've been reading through the Christmas story in the Bible. And as we've seen, the words joy and rejoice show up all over the Christmas story. And that's going to be the case today, too. We're going to focus on a group of guys who are known as the wise men or the magi. And I'm guessing that all of us are at least somewhat familiar with the wise men, but how well do you really know their story? Hopefully, you're not getting your information from Christmas carols because there are some inaccuracies there. For example, just a few minutes ago, we sang We Three Kings. There are some problems with that song. Uh, for one thing, the Bible never says they were kings. I guess they could have been, but Scripture doesn't say that. Then there's the number three. The Bible does say there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but doesn't say there were three kings, or three uh, wise men. Then there's another Christmas carol that's also misleading, the first Noel. I'm not picking on these songs. I love these songs, but uh, that one has a problem too. One of the verses says, the wise men looked up, or look it up, and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far. So what's wrong with that? Well, it says the star was shining in the east. 
That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the wise men were in the east, not the star. So from the perspective of the wise men, the star was in the west. If it had been in the east, they would have ended up in China or someplace like that. So over the years, lots of traditions and embellishments have been attached to the story of the wise men. Over time, people decided there were three kings, and then they gave them names. Melchior, Balthazar, Gaspar. And then, uh, at one point in the fourth century, a lady named Helena thought she found the remains of the wise men. And, and this is kind of bizarre, but today, if you go over to the Cologne Cathedral in Germany, you can visit the Shrine of the Three Kings. And inside the Shrine of the Three Kings, there are three skulls, and each skull has a golden crown sitting on it. Bizarre. <laughs> but today, we want to look at Scripture. We want to peel back the traditions and get to the truth. And we're not doing this just, just to get a, a good story. We're doing this because we want to listen to what God has to say to us right now. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, you don't want to take my word for this. I, I, want, I encourage you to follow along with me here. So here we go. Matthew 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. So verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, we'll stop right there and look at a couple things. Uh, we'll, we'll start with these first four words, after Jesus was born. We're picking up the story where we left off last week. And so far, we've been reading the Christmas story in the book of Luke. Luke is the one who tells us about the shepherds and the angel choir and baby Jesus in the manger. But today we're skipping over to the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew is the one who tells us about the Magi. And as Matthew gets started here, he tells us that Jesus was born in the days of a king named Herod. Now, Herod is usually considered the villain of the Christmas story, and he actually earns that title. He was a very cruel man. But you should also know that Herod was a man of great accomplishments. The Romans appointed him as king of Judea decades before Jesus was born. And he was a great leader. He was known as a great builder. He was famous for rebuilding the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But somehow, he never won the favor of the Jewish people. His big construction projects were funded by high taxes. And the Jews resented those high taxes. But really, the Jewish people, they resented any Roman ruler. They, they wanted to be free. As time went by, though, Herod became less and less likable. He descended into a violent paranoia. Herod was constantly afraid that someone might take over his throne. He was even suspicious of some of his family members. And he killed his wife, his mother-in-law, at least two of his sons. So by the time Jesus was born, things in Jerusalem and the surrounding region were very tense because Herod was crazy. And that was the environment that the wise men walked into. Well, let's back up and ask, who are the wise men? What do we know about the Magi? 
Well, unfortunately, uh, there's a lot we don't know, but in general, this word magi, it can refer to a variety of individuals. Uh, Magi were, were often scholars who studied things like mathematics, astronomy, Uh, medicine and science. Some of them were astrologers or priests or dream interpreters. And many of the Magi came from the regions of Persia or Babylon. And that would be modern-day Iran and Iraq. So we don't know exactly where the Magi came from, but Persia and Babylon are at least educated guesses. And depending on where they started, the journey to Jerusalem could have been as far as a thousand miles. And of course, at that time, uh, that would be an extremely difficult journey. But the Magi were convinced that the journey was worth it. So they hit the road and eventually they arrive in Jerusalem. And they gain an audience with the king, Herod. And they ask him, hey, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and we have come to worship him. So this is the motivation behind their journey. They, they just want to see this king and worship him. This is kind of confusing, isn't it? Because the wise men are not Jewish. So why would they care about a Jewish king who was born hundreds or maybe a thousand miles away? I mean, you know the Magi didn't travel the world every time some new king was born in a faraway country. So why did they care? And then think about that star. Why did they attach this celestial phenomenon specifically to the Jewish people? It's interesting. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail here, but there are some fascinating possibilities. For instance, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was a major event the Jewish people were overthrown by a powerful empire. And guess which empire that was? It was the Babylonian Empire. So many of the Jews were carried off as captives to Babylon. And some of those Jewish captives became very influential in the city of Babylon. Uh, The prophet Daniel is one example. So it's highly likely that these Jews shared their scriptures with the Babylonian intellectual community. You could easily imagine them sharing passages like this one from Numbers 24, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, this is just fun to think about. Is it possible that this prophecy was passed down from generation to generation all the way to the Magi in Matthew chapter 2? I think that's very plausible. In the end, however it happened, the Magi came to believe that this Jewish king was globally significant. And not just that, that he was worthy to be worshipped. And in order to find and worship worship the king, they they followed this special star. And, And that's another thing. People love trying to figure out this star. What exactly was that? Well, of course, there are many theories. I've heard lots of different ideas Uh, Some people say it might have been a supernova or a conjunction of planets or or even Halley's Comet. Uh, The reality is we don't know exactly what the star was, and we don't need to know to get to the point of the passage. We just need to know the Magi were coming to worship the child. And we spent a lot of time on these first two verses, but uh, let's read on, and I promise we'll pick up the pace. So verse 3 says, 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So a couple things stick out to me here. First, Herod was disturbed by this news. He was troubled by the threat that some new king was on the scene. That's not surprising at all, is it? But then why would all of Jerusalem be disturbed? Because they had no love for Herod, right? They should be ecstatic that a new king might come and overthrow Herod and bring freedom to the Jews. Well, I'll give you one good reason why the people of Jerusalem were disturbed. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Who knows what this violent, crazy king would do? And as it turns out, the people of Jerusalem were right to be disturbed. Later on, you can read through all of chapter 2 and you'll see that. But there's another interesting thing here. The priests and the teachers, they knew exactly where the Messiah would be born. He'd be born in Bethlehem. They learned that from the prophet Micah, who Matthew quotes here. So this is a little shocking, isn't it? Because the Magi knew that the king had already been born. But the Jewish religious leaders, they're clueless. And how could that be? I mean, they had the prophecy. And then beyond that, Bethlehem was a tiny town. And there was a buzz all over town at this point. Remember last week? Those shepherds left the manger and they ran all over the place just spreading the good news. So the word was clearly out. But apparently, the religious leaders were more focused on politics and power than the coming of the Messiah. That's tragic, isn't it? The, the people who were closest to the scriptures completely missed the Messiah's birth. And there's an important lesson here for any of us who call ourselves Christians, because you can be familiar with the Bible, you can hang around church, but that's not the same thing as knowing Jesus. Someone who knows Jesus and, and worships him and follows him, you're going to keep him at the center of your life. You're not going to neglect him for lesser things, which is what those religious leaders were doing. So let's remember that and read on. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, it's pretty obvious that Herod is putting on a little show here. Like, hey, when you find him, make sure you bring him back to me so I can <coughs> worship him. I don't know if anybody bought that charade, but you can see that the Magi were sincere. You see that in verse 10. Uh, the Magi spot that star, and, and these guys are fired up. The NIV translation here it uses the word overjoyed. 
But I love the way the ESV translation says it. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy, isn't it? And actually, that's, that's how it reads in the original Greek. Joy on top of joy. The Magi are ecstatic. And why is that? That's because they have a sincere desire to find this king and worship him. Did you notice something strange about the star here? It came to rest over the place where Jesus was staying. And if, if this star was way up in the heavens, it, it wouldn't help you identify the location of a particular house. And that's why many scholars say, and I tend to agree, that there was a special kind of light here that God provided to guide the Magi. And that wouldn't be the first time. You might remember back in the book of Exodus, God guided his people with a pillar of fire. And really, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So right here, he has some special way to lead the wise men to Jesus. Okay, let's finish up verses 11 and 12. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So right here, we have another chance to separate tradition from Scripture. You see that? The Magi found Jesus in a house, not at the manger. They're not looking at a newborn baby here. Jesus was already months old, maybe up to two years old. And of course, it's traditional to have the wise men in your nativity scene, but to be accurate, they, they shouldn't be rubbing shoulders with the shepherds. If you, if you want to do this right, you can put your nativity scene on your mantle or wherever, but you should probably leave the wise men out in the garage or somewhere. You can just say they're on their way, and, and maybe next summer they can catch up with Jesus. That'd be about right. But back to the passage. This is such an amazing moment. Picture this. Picture Mary with Jesus in this rented house, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. Now, I don't know who Mary expected when she opened the door, but I guarantee you she didn't look out there and say, oh, it's just the Magi, they're here. <laughs> no, she, she had no idea. She, she wasn't looking for these wealthy, prominent, exotic men from some faraway land that she couldn't even imagine. No, Mary would have been shocked. And I'm sure as they stepped into the house, their presence would have been very intimidating I bet it would have been natural for a poor Jewish girl like Mary to, to bow her head in respect to these visitors. But before she had the chance to do that, the Magi were the ones to bow down. They humbled themselves before Jesus in worship. And then they brought out those extravagant gifts Anybody who's ever seen a Christmas pageant is familiar with these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And some people see symbolism in the gifts, and that's, uh, that's possible. Uh, gold might symbolize the royalty of Jesus as the king of kings. Frankincense is something that you see throughout the Old Testament, and, and you often see it in the context of worship. So frankincense might represent the deity of Jesus. 
And then myrrh was often used to embalm a body. So myrrh could have been a foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross. These things are fascinating to think about, but let's not miss the point of this passage. In Matthew chapter 2, God has something to say to us right here, right now. And when I read stories like this, it's, it's easy for me to get pulled into those classic questions. Where did the wise men come from? What exactly was that star? And it's, it's a good thing to explore those questions, but not at the expense of letting God speak to your heart. So let's take a minute and consider three facts that we've encountered in this passage. And then let's be open to the lessons that God would teach us. First, consider this. The wise men did not come to Jesus for what they could get. They came to Jesus for what they could give. And this is kind of amazing when you think about it. Why why did they make that long journey? Why did they go to all that trouble? What was in it for them? I thought about this. You know, the Magi could have tried to play this situation to their advantage. They knew this little king would grow up. And then if they hung around for a few years, maybe they would be rewarded for being some of his earliest supporters and benefactors. But they didn't think like that, did they? The Magi made this entire journey just for the privilege of worshiping Jesus. It wasn't about them. They came, they worshiped, and then they went home. There's a lesson here for us. The lesson is, my life is not about me. I was made to worship and bring glory to God, bring glory to Jesus. You know, some people have to learn this lesson the hard way. Herod is a perfect example of that. He lived such a self-focused life. He did everything he could to accumulate wealth and power, and then he did everything he could to hold on to that power. It's kind of a closed-fist mentality, right? But, you know, living with a closed-fist mentality is an exercise in futility. It's completely futile because the things of this world are just temporary. They don't last. We see that in James chapter 4, verse 14. James says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, it's important for us to stop now and then and let this truth just sink into our souls. I wanted to visualize what James is saying in this verse, so I brought a can of Febreze here with me. And I've, I've used this illustration in the past, but I wanted to take it a little further this morning. So James says, this is what your life is like. You're born, you float around like a mist for a few years, and then you're gone. It's already gone. Born, mist, gone. <laughs> From God's perspective, this is what our lives look like. Our time on earth is so short. You could live to be 100 or you could die today, but either way, our lives are just a mist. So now, with that in mind, let's let's think about King Herod and his closed fist mindset. Think think about the way he just clung to wealth and power. And now, let's, let's spray a mist that represents Herod. And then let's think about how he just tried to hold on to those things. But how did that work out? If you live with that closed fist mindset, what do you end up with? Nothing. That's what he had in the end. So this is another important lesson for us. 
my life is not about me. Your life is not about you. But if you make it your primary goal to pursue success or power or money or pleasure, you'll eventually learn what Herod discovered. You can't hold on to the things of this world no matter what you do. If you make your life about you, you're headed for emptiness, regret. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. You're headed for death, eternal death. But if your life is about worshiping Jesus and bringing glory to him, you will find joy and hope and life, eternal life. You know, here in uh, Matthew 2, we, we see two extremes, don't we? We have Herod on one side, and then we have the Magi on the other side. And you know, the Magi were wealthy too. The Magi had power too, but they didn't live with that closed fist mindset. They came to Jesus with open hands, ready to give. That leads us to another fact in this story in order to worship Jesus, the wise men made great sacrifices. They traveled a great distance. They showed great humility, and they gave expensive gifts. Worshiping Jesus wasn't a side project for them. It was the, their primary pursuit throughout this story. And the same thing is true for us today. If we're going to worship Jesus, it involves sacrifice. It, it's demanding. It's humbling. It costs something. You don't just live your life however you want and then sprinkle a little Jesus here and there when it's convenient. No, it's another lesson that we learn from the Magi. When I am sincere about worshiping Jesus, I will lay down my pride, give of myself, and I will give of my resources. The Magi did this. They sacrificed their pride. They gave of their time, their energy, their treasure. But what kind of sacrifice does God call us to make today? We see that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That verse says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, give your entire self completely over to God, completely over to his will and his purposes. That's what true worship is. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's not something you do now and then. True worship is giving your whole life to God. Now, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand what's happening here. The Magi gave these sacrificial gifts, but they did not do that as a way to earn God's favor. That's not how it works. None of us can earn God's favor or his approval with gifts or sacrifices or good works. That's, that's not how it happens. Nothing we could do would earn God's favor. So then, why would we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? Why would we give our life completely over to him? Well, we do that as a response to what God has already done, to what he has already given us. God sent Jesus in this world to seek and save lost people like you and me. And then Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice when he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. 
And because of his sacrifice, we have the opportunity to receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And when you receive that gift by God's grace through faith in Jesus, you know what? You are full of love and gratitude for God for what he has done. So that's the motivation. That's why we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's why we lay down our pride and give of our resources. It's about love. It's about gratitude. We love God because he first loved us. And the amazing thing is, when we offer ourselves to him, we get blessed in the process. I know many of you have seen that. I've seen it in my life. For a long time now, my wife Hannah and I, we've seen the more we give, the more we're blessed. For example, uh, when, when we choose to be sacrificially generous with our finances, uh, we get all kinds of blessings. For one thing, we, we get the blessing of seeing that God provides everything we need. Uh, there have been several times where we, we really took a big leap of faith and we gave more than what we were comfortable giving. But God always took care of us. It's a blessing to see his faithfulness. Another blessing is to see how God uses our gifts to make a difference for his kingdom. Uh, we see that in our regular giving here at Plum Creek, and, and we also see it when we give toward special projects uh, for the work of his kingdom. Uh, man, this year, in the year of the kingdom at Plum Creek, it, it's been uh, so good to, to give to things like our be beans and rice offering or, or the offering to help refugees in Ukraine. That's been a blessing because we've seen God work through that. I've heard stories. I've seen the pictures. It's a privilege to be a part of what God is doing in the world. So it's good, but it's also challenging. In a time like this, uh, when some of us are feeling tighter financially than, than what we're used to, boy, it, it, it can be uh, a scary thing to be sacrificially generous. But Hannah and I have been talking about this. We want to continue to give for the work of God's kingdom, which means we need to be very intentional in the way that we handle our money. That's a good reason to think about taking Financial Peace University. Uh, when, when your finances are in order, it opens up all these opportunities to be generous. All right, we'll look at one more lesson, and, and this one is just fun. Here's the fact. As the wise men pursued Jesus, they found joy in the journey. Remember that ESV translation. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But this joy is not unique to the Magi. This lesson is also for us. Giving our hearts and lives to Jesus, it always leads to joy. We saw that two weeks ago with Mary. She surrendered to God, uh, agreed to play the role that he called her to play. And then what happened? She, she broke out in this song of joy. And then we saw that last week with the shepherds. The angel came and said to the shepherds, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. But this is true for us as well. Giving our lives and our hearts to Jesus, it leads to joy. So as we bring this to a close, um, I have an action step that we can all take right now. now we're going to focus on the joy that comes from knowing Jesus, and, and we're going to share that joy with others. If you picked up a bulletin this morning, you probably noticed uh, there's a Christmas card inside. 
And I want to encourage you to think about who it is in your life that may need to get this card from you. And there are a couple ways to to think about this. Uh, First, you might identify someone who has blessed you and pointed you to Jesus. And then you could use this card to say, thank you for sharing the joy of Christmas with me. But you could also think about someone who needs to know Jesus. And then you could use use this card to say, hey, let me share the joy of Christmas with you. And if that person uh, lives nearby here, it would be a great thing to take uh, one of those invite cards to our Christmas Eve services or our Christmas Day service and, and just invite them. Invite them to come with you. That would be a great thing. Now, if you're struggling to think of somebody, we've got you covered. Because we're going to take a batch of these cards down to the River Valley Nursing Home. And if you want to share some joy down there, we have addressed envelopes out at the Information Center. And if you are an overachiever and you'd like to send two cards, one to the person you chose and, and one to River Valley, we have some extra cards at the Info Center as well. And yes, something like this, it's a small gesture. It's a small gift. But even a small gift can make a big difference when it's an act of worship in the name of Jesus. And don't forget, every act of worship is an opportunity for joy. So let's spread that joy this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I I thank you that uh, it's full of not only amazing stories, but powerful truths that you want to communicate to us. So, Lord, help us to learn from the Magi here to to be focused on worship, on the reason we were created. Lord, help us to be willing to to live lives where we give ourselves completely over to you and that we're willing to make sacrifices for the work of your kingdom and and for your glory. Lord, I, I pray for all of us here that we might take the step you're calling us to take today to keep you at the center of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.